part first, at Mary Green. Yea, many there be that have run out of their wits for women, and become servants for their sake. Many also have perished, have erred, and sinned for women. O ye men, how can it be but women should be strong, seeing they do this? Esdras Chapter 1 The schoolmaster was leaving the village, and everybody seemed sorry. The miller at Crescombe lent him the small white tilted cart and horse to carry his goods to the city of his destination, about twenty miles off, such a vehicle proving of quite sufficient size for the departing teacher's effects. For the schoolhouse had been partly furnished by the managers, and the only cumbersome article possessed by the master, in addition to the packing case of books, was a cottage piano that he had bought at an auction during a year in which he thought of learning instrumental music. But the enthusiasm having waned, he had never acquired any skill in playing, and the purchased article had been a perpetual trouble to him ever since in moving house. The rector had gone away for the day, being a man who disliked the sight of changes. He did not mean to return till the evening when the new school teacher would have arrived and settled in, and everything would be smoother again. The blacksmith, the farm bailiff, and the schoolmaster himself were sitting in perplexed attitudes in the parlor before the instrument. The master had remarked that even before that even if he got it into the cart, he should not know what to do with it on his arrival at Christminster, the city he was bound for, since he was only going into temporary lodgings just at first. A little boy of eleven, who had been thoughtfully assisting in the packing, joined the group of men, and as they rubbed their chins, he spoke up, blushing at the sound of his own voice. "'Aunt have got a great fuel house. It could be put there, perhaps, till you found a place to settle in, sir.' "'A proper good notion,' said the blacksmith. "'It was decided that a deputation should wait on the boy's aunt, an old maiden residence, and ask her if she would house the piano till Mr. Philotson should send for it.' The smith and the bailiff started to see about the practicability of the suggested shelter, and the boy and the schoolmaster were left standing alone. "'Sorry I am going, Jude?' asked the latter kindly. Tears rose into the boy's eyes, for he was not among the regular-day scholars who came unromantically close to the schoolmaster's life, but one who had attended the night school only during the present teacher's term of office. The regular scholars, if the truth must be told, stood at the present moment afar off, like certain historic disciples indisposed to any enthusiastic volunteering of aid. The boy awkwardly opened the book he held in his hand, which Mr. Philotston had bestowed on him as a parting gift, and admitted that he was sorry. "'So am I,' said Mr. Philotston. "'Why do you go, sir?' asked the boy. "'Ah, that would be a long story.' You wouldn't understand my reasons, Jude. You will, perhaps, when you are older. I think I should now, sir. Well, don't speak of this everywhere. You know what a university is, and a university degree? It is the necessary hallmark of a man who wants to do anything in teaching. My scheme, or dream, is to be a university graduate and then be ordained. By going to live at Christminster or near it, I shall be at headquarters, so to speak and if my scheme is practicable at all, I consider that being on the spot will afford me a better chance of carrying it out than I should have elsewhere. 
the smith and his companion returned. Old Miss Folly's fuel house was dry and eminently practicable, and she seemed willing to give the instrument standing room there. It was accordingly left in the school till the evening, when more hands would be available for removing it, and the schoolmaster gave a final glance round. The boy Jude assisted in loading some small articles, and at nine o'clock Mr. Philotson mounted beside his box of books and other impedimenta and bade his friends good-bye. "'I shan't forget you, Jude,' he said, smiling as the cart moved off. "'Be a good boy, remember, and be kind to animals and birds, and read all that you can. And if ever you come to Christminster, remember, you hunt me out for old acquaintance' sake.' The cart creaked across the green, and disappeared round the corner by the rectory house. The boy returned to the draw-well at the edge of the greensward, where he had left his buckets when he went to help his patron and teacher in the loading. There was a quiver in his lip now, and after opening the well-cover and began lowering the bucket, he paused and leant with his forehead and arms against the framework his face wearing the fixity of a thoughtful child's who had felt the pricks of life somewhat before his time. The well into which he was looking was as ancient as the village itself, and from his present position appeared as a long circular perspective ending in a shining disk of quivering water at a distance of a hundred feet down. There was a lining of green moss near the top, and nearer still, the heart's tongue fern. He said to himself, the melodramatic tones of a whimsical boy, that the schoolmaster had drawn at that well scores of times on a morning like this, and would never draw there any more. I've seen him look down into it when he was tired with his drawing, just as I do now, and when he rested a bit before carrying the buckets home, but he was too clever to bide here any longer, a small sleepy place like this, a tear rolled from his eye into the depths of the well. The morning was a little foggy, and the boy's breathing unfurled itself as a thicker fog upon the still and heavy air. His thoughts were interrupted by a sudden outcry. "'Bring on that water, will ye, you idle harlequin!' It came from an old woman who had emerged from her door towards the garden gate of a green-thatched cottage not far off. The boy quickly waved a signal of assent, drew the water with what was a great effort for one of his stature, landed and emptied the big bucket into his own pair of smaller ones, and, pausing a moment for breath, started with them across, across the patch of clammy greensward whereon the well stood, nearly in the center of the little village, or rather hamlet, of Mary Green. It was as old-fashioned as it was small, and it rested in the lap of an undulating upland adjoining the North Wessex Downs. Old as it was, however, the well shaft was probably the only relic of local history that remained absolutely unchanged. Many of the thatched and dormered dwelling houses had been pulled down of late years, and many trees felled on the green. Above all, the original church, hump-backed, wood-turreted, and quaintly hipped, had been taken down, and either cracked up into heaps of road metal in the lane, or utilized as pigsty walls, garden seeds, garden stones to fences, and in rockeries in the flower beds of the neighborhood. In place of it, a tall new building of modern Gothic design, unfamiliar to English eyes, 
had been erected on a new piece of ground by a certain obliterator of historic records who had run down from London and back in a day. The site whereon so long had stood the ancient temple to the Christian divinities was not even recorded on the green and level grass plot that had immemorially been the churchyard, the obliterated graves being commemorated by eighteen-penny cast-iron crosses warranted to last five years. Chapter 2 Slender, as was Jude Folly's frame, he bore the two brimming house buckets of water to the cottage without resting. Over the door was painted a little rectangular piece of blue board, on which was painted in yellow letters, Drusilla Folly Baker. Within the little lead panes of the window, this being one of the few old houses left, were five bottles of sweets and three buns on a plate of the willow pattern. While emptying the buckets at the back of the house, he could hear an animated conversation in progress within doors between his great-aunt, the Drusilla of the signboard, and some other villagers. Having seen the schoolmaster depart, they were summing up particulars of the event and indulging in predictions of his future. "'And who's he?' asked one, comparatively a stranger, when the boy entered. "'Well, you meet ask it, Mrs. Williams.' He's my great-nephew, come since he was last this way. The old inhabitant, who answered, was a tall, gaunt woman, who spoke tragically on the most trivial subject, and gave a phrase of her conversation to each auditor in turn. He come from Melstock down in South Wessex about a year ago. Worse luck for him, Belinda, turning to the right. Where his father was living, and was took with the shakings for death, and died in two days, as you know, Caroline, turning to the left. It would have been a blessing if God Almighty had took thee too with the mother and father, poor useless boy, but I've got him here to stay with me till I can see him what's to be done with him, though I am obliged to let him earn any penny he can. Just now he's a scaring of birds for Farmer Troutham. Keeps him out of mischty. Why do ye turn away, Jude? she continued, as the boy, feeling the impact of their glances like slaps upon his face, moved aside. The local washerwoman replied that it was perhaps a very good plan of Miss, or Mrs. Follies, as they kept calling her indifferently, to have him with her, to keep her the company in your loneliness, fetch water, shed the window shutters o' nights, and help him in the bit o' baking. Mrs. Folly doubted it. "'Why didn't ye get the schoolmaster to take ye to Christminster with them, and make a scholar of ye?' she continued, in frowning pleasantry. "'I'm sure he couldn't have took a better one. The boy is crazy for books, that he is. It runs in our family, rather. My niece and her husband, after they were married, didn't get a house of their own for some year or more, and then they only had one, so... Well, I won't go into that, Jude, my child. Don't you ever marry. Tisn't for the follies to take that step any more. She, their only one, was like a child of my own, Belinda, till the split come. Ah, that little maid should know such changes. Jude, finding the general attention again centering on himself, went out to the bakehouse, where he ate the cake provided for his breakfast. The end of his spare time had now arrived, 
and emerging from the garden by getting over the hedge at the back, he pursued a path northward till he came to a wide and lonely depression in the general level of the upland, which was sown as a cornfield. This vast concave was the scene of his labors for Mr. Troutham, the farmer, and he descended into the midst of it. The brown surface of the field went right up towards the sky and all around, where it was lost by degrees in the mist that shut out the actual verge and accentuated the solitude. The only marks on the uniformity of the scene were a rick of last year's produce standing in the midst of the arable, the rooks that rose at his approach, the path athwart the follow by which he had come, trodden now by he hardly knew whom, though once by many of his own dead family. "'How ugly it is here,' he murmured. The fresh harrow line seemed to stretch like the channelings in a piece of new corduroy, lending a meanly utilitarian air to the expanse, taking away its gradations and depriving it of all history beyond that of the few recent months, though to every clod and stone there really attached associations enough and to spare, echoes of songs from ancient harvest days, of spoken words, and of sturdy deeds." Every inch of ground had been the site, first or last, of energy, gaiety, horseplay, bickerings, weariness. Groups of gleaners had squatted in the sun on every square yard. Love matches that had populated the adjoining hamlet had been made up there between reaping and carrying. Under the hedge which divided the field from a distant plantation, Girls had given themselves to lovers who would not turn their heads and look at them by the next harvest. And in that ancient cornfield many a man had made love promises to a woman at whose voice he had trembled by the next seed time after fulfilling them in the church adjoining. But this neither Jude nor the rooks around him considered. For them it was a lonely place, possessing, in the one view, only the quality of a work-ground, and in the other that of a granary good to feed in. The boy stood under the rick before mentioned, and every few seconds used his clacker or rattle briskly. At each clack the rooks left off pecking, and rose and went away on their leisurely wings, burnished like tassets of mail, afterwards wheeling back and regarding him warily, and descending to feed at a more respectful distance. He sounded the clacker till his arm ached, and at length his heart grew sympathetic with the bird's thwarted desires. They seemed, like himself, to be living in a world which did not want them. Why should he frighten them away? They took upon more and more the aspect of gentle friends and pensioners, the only friends he could claim as being in the least degree interested in him, for his aunt had often told him that she was not. He ceased his rattling, and they alighted anew. "'Poor little dears,' said Jude aloud. "'You shall have your dinner. You shall. There's enough for us all. Farmer Troutham can afford to let you have some. Eat then, my dear little birdies, and make a good meal.' They stayed and ate, inky spots on the nut-brown soil, and Jude enjoyed their appetite. A magic thread of fellow-feeling united his own life with theirs. Puny and sorry as those lives were, they much resembled his own. 
His clacker he had by this time, thrown away from him as being a mean and sordid instrument, offensive both to the birds and to himself as their friend. All at once he became conscious of a smart blow upon his buttocks, followed by a loud crack, which announced to his surprised senses that the clacker had been the instrument of offense used. The birds and Jude started up simultaneously, and the dazed eyes of the latter beheld the farmer in person, the great Troutham himself, his face glaring down upon Jude's cowering frame, the clacker swinging in his hand. "'So it's eat, my dear birdies, is it, young man? Eat, dear birdies, indeed. I'll tickle your breeches and see if you say eat, dear birdies, again in a hurry. And you've been idling at the schoolmaster's, too, instead of coming here, hadn't ye? Hey, that's how you earn your sixpence a day for keeping the rooks off my corn.' Whilst saluting Jude's ears with this impassioned rhetoric, Trotham had seized his left hand with his own left, and swinging his slim frame around him at arm's length again struck Jude on the hind parts with the flat side of Jude's own rattle, till the field echoed with the blows, which were delivered once or twice at each revolution. "'Don't, sir, please don't!' cried the whirling child, as helpless under the centrifugal tendency of his person as a hooked fish swinging to the land, and beholding the hill, the rick, the plantation, the path, and the rooks going round and round him in an amazing circular race. "'I—I I only, sir, only meant that there was a good crop in the ground. I saw him sow it, and the rooks could have a little bit for dinner, and you wouldn't miss it, sir.' "'and Mr. Philotson said I was to be kind to him. "'Oh, oh, oh!' "'This truthful explanation seemed to exasperate the farmer "'even more than if Jude had stoutly denied saying anything at all. "'And still he smacked the whirling urchin, "'the clacks of the instrument continuing to resound all across the field "'and as far as the ears of distant workers, "'who gathered thereupon that Jude was pursuing his business of clacking "'with great astutity.' and echoing from the brand-new church tower just behind the mist towards the building of which structure the farmer had largely subscribed to testify his love for God and man. Presently, Troutham grew tired of his punitive task, and disposing the quivering boy on his legs, took a sixpence from his pocket and gave it him in payments for his day's work, telling him to go home and never let him see him in one of those fields again. Jude leapt out of arm's reach, and walked along the trackway weeping, not from the pain, though that was keen enough, not from the perception of the flaw in the terrestrial scheme, by which what was good for God's birds was bad for God's gardener, but with the awful sense that he had wholly disgraced himself before he had been a year in the parish, and hence might be a burden to his great-aunt for life." With this shadow on his mind, he did not care to show himself in the village, and went homeward by a roundabout track behind a high hedge and across a pasture. Here he beheld scores of coupled earthworms lying half their length on the surface of damp ground, as they always did in such weather at that time of year. It was impossible to advance in regular steps without crushing some of them at each tread. Though Farmer Troutham had just hurt him, he was a boy who could not himself bear to hurt anything. He had never brought home a nest of young birds without lying awake in misery half the night after, and often reinstating them 
and the nest in their original place the next morning. He could scarcely bear to see trees cut down or lopped, from a fancy that it hurt them, and late pruning, when the sap was up and the tree bred, bled profusely, had been a positive grief to him in his infancy. This weakness of character, as it may be called, suggested that he was the sort of man who was born to ache a good deal before the fall of the curtain upon his unnecessary life should signify that all was well with him again. He carefully picked his way on tiptoe among the earthworms without killing a single one. Upon entering the cottage, he found his aunt selling a penny loaf to a little girl, and when the customer was gone, she said, "'Well, how do you come back here in the middle of the morning like this?' "'I'm turned away.' "'What?' "'Mr. Troutham have turned me away because I let the rooks have a few peckings of corn, and there's my wages, the last I shall ever have.' He threw the sixpence tragically on the table. "'Ah!' said his aunt, suspending her breath and she opened upon him a lecture on how she would now have him all spring upon her hands doing nothing. "'If you can't skeer birds, what can you do? There, don't look ye so deedy. Farmer Trotham is not so much better than myself come to that. But tis as Job said, "'Now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock.' "'His father was my father's journeyman, anyhow.' and I must have been a fool to let you go to work for him, in which I shouldn't have done but to keep you out of mischief. More angry with Jude for demeaning her by coming there than for dereliction of duty, she rated him primarily from that point of view, and only secondarily from a moral one. Not that you should have let the birds eat what Farmer Troutham planted. Of course he was wrong in that. Jude... Jude, why didn't you go off with that schoolmaster of thine to Christmas dinner somewhere? But, oh no, poor ordinary child. There never was any sprawl on thy side of the family, and never will be. Where is this beautiful city, aunt? This place where Mr. Mr. Philotston has gone to? Asked the boy after meditating in silence. Lord, you all know where the city of Christminster is, near a score miles from here. It is a place much too good for you to ever have much to do with, poor boy, I'm a-thinkin'. And will Mr. Philotston always be there? How can I tell? Could I go see him? Lord, no. You didn't grow up hereabout, or you wouldn't ask such as that. We never had anything to do with folks in Christminster, nor folk in Christminster with us. Jude went out, and feeling more than ever his existence to be an undemanded one, he lay down upon his back on the heap of litter near the pigsty. The fog had by this time become more translucent, and the position of the sun could be seen through it. He pulled his straw hat over his face and peered through the intersexes of the plating at the white brightness, vaguely reflecting. Growing up brought responsibilities, he found. Events did not rhyme quite as he had thought. Nature's logic was too horrid for him to care for. That mercy towards one set of creatures was cruelty towards another sickened his sense of harmony. And as you got older, and felt yourself to be at the center of your time, and not at a point in its circumference as you had felt when you were little, you were seized with a sort of shuddering, he perceived. All around you 
there seemed to be something glaring, garish, rattling, and the noises and glares hit upon the little cell called your life and shook it and warped it. If he could only prevent himself growing up, he did not want to be a man. Then, like the natural boy, he forgot his despondency and sprang up. During the remainder of the morning, he helped his aunt, and in the afternoon, when there was nothing more to be done, he went into the village. Here he asked a man whereabouts Chris Minster lay. Chris Minster? Oh, well, out there yonder, though. I've never been there, not I. I've never had any business at such a place. The man pointed northeastward in the very direction where lay the field in which Jude had so disgraced himself. There was something unpleasant about the coincidence, for the moment, but the fearsomeness of this fact rather increased his curiosity about the city. The farmer had said he was never to be seen in that field again, yet Christminster lay across it, and the path was a public one, so stealing out of the hamlet, he descended into the same hollow which had witnessed his punishment in the morning, never swerving an inch from the path, and climbing up the long and tedious ascent on the other side, till the track joined the highway by a little clump of trees. Here the plough land ended, and all before him was bleak open down. Chapter 3 Not a soul was visible on the hedgeless highway, or on either side of it, and the white road seemed to ascend and diminish till it joined the sky. At the very top it was crossed at right angles by a green ridgeway, the Ichneld Street, and original Roman road through the district. This ancient track ran east and west for many miles, and down almost to within living memory, had been used for driving flocks and herds to fairs and markets, but it was now neglected and overgrown. The boy had never before strayed so far north as this from the nestling hamlet in which he had been deposited by the carrier from a railway station southward one dark evening some few months earlier. Until now, he had no suspicion that such a wide, flat, low-lying country lay so near at hand, under the very verge of his upland world. The whole northern semicircle, between east and west, to a distance of forty or fifty miles, spread itself before him, a bluer, moister atmosphere, evidently, than that he breathed up here. Not far from the road stood a weather-beaten old barn of reddish-gray brick and tile. It was known as the Brown House by the people of the locality. He was about to pass it when he perceived a ladder against the eaves, and the reflection that the higher he got, the further he could see, led Jude to stand and regard it. On the slope of the roof, two men were repairing the tiling. He turned into the ridgeway and drew towards the barn. When he had wistfully watched the workmen, for some time he took courage and ascended the ladder till he stood beside them. "'Well, my lad, and what may you want up here?' "'I wanted to know where the city of Christminster is, if you please.' "'Christminster is out across there, by that clump. You can see it. At least you can see it on a clear day. Ah, no, you can't see it now.' The other Tyler, glad of any kind of diversion from the monotony of his labor, had also turned to look towards this quarter designated. "'You can't often see it in the weather like this,' he said. "'The time I've noticed it is when the sun is going down in a blaze of flame, and it looks like I don't know what.' "'The heavenly Jerusalem? 
suggested the serious urchin. Ah, though I should never have thought of it myself, but I can't see no Christminster today. The boy strained his eyes also, yet neither could he see the far-off city. He descended from the barn, and abandoning Christminster with the versatility of his age, he walked along the ridge track, looking for any natural objects of interest that might lie in the banks thereabout. When he repassed the barn to go back to Marygreen, he observed that the ladder was still in its place, but that the men had finished their day's work and gone away. It was waning towards evening. There was still a faint mist, but it had cleared a little, except in the damper tracks of the subjacent country and along the river courses. He thought again of Christminster and wished, since he had come two or three miles from his aunt's house on purpose— that he could have seen for once this attractive city of which he had been told. But even if he waited here, it was hardly likely that the air would clear before night. Yet he was loath to leave the spot, for the northern expanse became lost to view on retreating towards the village only a few hundred yards. He ascended the ladder to have one more look at the point the men had designated, and perched himself on the highest rung overlying the tiles. He might not be able to come so far as this for many days. Perhaps if he prayed, the wish to see Christminster might be forwarded. People said that if you prayed, things sometimes came to you, even though they sometimes did not. He had read in a tract that a man who had begun to build a church and had no money to finish it knelt down and prayed, and the money came in by the next post. Another man tried the same experiment, and the money did not come, but he found afterwards that the breaches he knelt in were made by a wicked Jew. This was not discouraging, and turning on the ladder, Jude knelt on the third rung, where, resting against those above it, he prayed that the mist might rise. He then seated himself again, and waited. In the course of ten or fifteen minutes, the thinning mist dissolved altogether from the northern horizon, as it had already done elsewhere and about a quarter of an hour before the time of sunset, the westward clouds parted, the sun's position being partially uncovered, and the beam streaming out in visible lines between two bars of slatty cloud. The boy immediately looked back in the old direction. Some way within the limits of the stretch of landscape, points of lights, like topaz, gleamed. The boy immediately looked back in the old direction. Some way within the limits of the stretch of the landscape, points of light like the topaz gleamed. The air increased in transparency with the lapse of minutes, till the topaz points showed themselves to be the veins, windows, wet roof slates, and other shining spots upon the spires, domes, freestone work, and varied outlines that were faintly revealed. It was Christminster, unquestionably, either directly seen or miraged in the peculiar atmosphere. The spectator gazed on and on, till the windows and vanes lost their shine, going out almost suddenly like extinguished candles. The vague city became veiled in mist. Turning to the west, he saw that the sun had disappeared. The foreground of the scene had grown funerally dark, and near objects put on the hues and shapes of chimeras. He anxiously descended the ladder and started homeward at a run, trying not to think of giants. Hearn the Hunter, Apollyon lying in wait for the Christian, 
or of the captain with the bleeding hole in his forehead and the corpses round him that re-mutinied every night on board of the bewitched ship. He knew that he had grown out of belief in these horrors, yet he was glad when he saw the church tower and the lights in the cottage windows, even though this was not the home of his birth, and his great-aunt did not much care for him. Inside and round about that old woman's shop window, with its twenty-four little panes set in lead-work, the glass of some of them oxidized with age, so that you could hardly see the poor penny articles exhibited within, and forming part of a stock which a strong man could have carried. Jude had his outer being for some long tideless time, but his dreams were as gigantic as his surroundings were small. Through the solid barrier of cold Cretaceous upland to the northward, he was always beholding a gorgeous city, the fancied place he had likened to the New Jerusalem, though there was perhaps more of the painter's imagination and less of the diamonds merchant in his dreams thereof than in those of the apocalyptic writer. And the city acquired a tangibility, a permanence, a hold on his life, mainly from the one nucleus of fact that the man for whose knowledge and purpose he had so much reverence was actually living there. Not only so, but living among more thoughtful and mentally shining ones therein. In sad wet seasons, though he knew it must rain at Christminster too, he could hardly believe that it rained so drearily there. Whenever he could get away from the confines of the hamlet for an hour or two, which was not often, he would steal off to the brown house on the hill and strain his eyes persistently, sometimes to be rewarded by the sight of a dome or spire, at other times by a little smoke, which in his estimate had some of the mysticism of incense. Then the day came when it suddenly occurred to him that if he ascended to the point of view after dark, or possibly went a mile or two further, he would see the night lights of the city. It would be necessary to come back alone, but even that consideration did not deter him, for he could throw a little manliness into his mood, no doubt. The project was duly executed. It was not late when he arrived at the place of outlook, only just after dusk, but a black northeast sky, accompanied by a wind from the same quarter, made the occasion dark enough. He was rewarded, but what he saw was not the lamps in rows as he had half expected. No individual light was visible, only a halo or glow fog overarching the place against the black heavens behind it, making the light and the city seem distant but a mile or so. He set himself to wonder on the exact point in the glow where the schoolmaster might be, he who never communicated with anybody at Mary Green now, who was as if dead to them here. In the glow he seemed to see Philotston promenading at ease, like one of the forms in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He had heard that breezes traveled at the rate of ten miles an hour, and the fact now came to his mind. He parted his lips as he faced the northeast, and drew in the wind as if it were a sweet liqueur. You, he said, addressing the breeze caressingly, were in Christminster City between one and two hours ago, floating along the streets, pulling round the weathercocks, touching Mr. Philotson's face, being breathed by him, and now you are here, breathed by me, you, the very same. Suddenly there came along this wind something towards him, a message from the place, from some soul residing there, it seemed. 
Surely it was the sound of bells, the voice of the city, faint and musical, calling to him, We are happy here. He had become entirely lost to his bodily situation during this mental leap, and only got back to it by a rough recalling. A few yards below the brow of the hill on which he paused, a team of horses made its appearance, having reached the place by dint of half an hour's serpentine progress from the bottom of the immense declivity. They had a load of coal behind them, a fuel that could only be got into the upland by this particular route. They were accompanied by a carter, a second man, and a boy, who now kicked a large stone behind one of the wheels, and allowed the panting animals to have a long rest, while those in charge took a flagon off the load and indulged in a drink-round. They were elderly men, and had genial voices. Jude addressed them, inquiring if they had come from Christminster. "'Heaven forbid with this load,' said they. "'The place I mean is that one yonder.' He was getting so romantically attached to Christminster that, like a young lover alluding to his mistress, he felt bashful at mentioning its name again. He pointed to the light in the sky, hardly perceptible to their older eyes. "'Yes, there do seem a spot brighter in the nor'east than elsewhere, though I shouldn't have noticed it myself, and no doubt it may be Christminster.' Here, a little book of tales which Jude had tucked up under his arm, having brought them to read on his way hither before it grew dark, slipped and fell into the road. The carter eyed him while he picked it up and straightened the leaves. "'Our young man,' he observed, "'you'd have get your head screwed on the other way before you could read what they read there.' "'Why?' asked the boy. "'Well, they never look at anything that folks like we can understand,' the carter continued." by way of passing the time. Only foreign tongues used in the days of the Tower of Babel, where no two families spoke alike. They read that sort of thing as fast as a nighthawk will whir. "'Tis all learning there. Nothing but learning. Except religion. And that's learning, too, for I never could understand it. Yet tis a serious-minded place. Not but there's wenches in the street tonight. You know, I suppose, that they do raise parsons there like radishes in a bed. Although it do take, how many years, Bob? Five years to turn a lurruping hobbledy-hoy chap into a solemn preaching man with no corrupt passions, they'll do it if it can be done. And polishin' off like the workmen they be, and turn out with a long face, and a long black coat, and waistcoat, and a religious collar and hat, same as they used to wear in the scriptures, so that his own mother wouldn't know him sometimes. There, tis their business, like anybody else's. "'But how should you know? Now don't you interrupt, my boy. Never interrupt your seniors. Move the forehoss aside, Bobby. Here's some at coming. You must mind that I be a-talkin' of the college life. Ems lives on a lofty level. There's no gainsayin' it, though I myself may not think much of em. And we be here in our bodies on this high ground. So be they in their minds, noble-minded men enough, no doubt. Some of em able to earn hundreds by thinkin' out loud.' and some on em be strong young fellows that can earn almost as much in silver cups. As for music, there's beautiful music everywhere in Christminster. You may be religious, or you may not, but you can't help striking in your homely note with the rest. And there's a street in the place, the main street, that hadn't another like it in the world. I should think I did know a little about Christminster. By this time, the horses had recovered breath, 
and bent to their callers again. Jude, throwing a last adoring look at the distant halo, turned and walked beside his remarkably well-informed friend, who had no objections to telling him as they moved on more yet of the city, its towers and halls and churches. The wagon turned into a crossroad, whereupon Jude thanked the carter warmly for his information, and said he only wished he could talk half as well as about Christminster as he. "'Well, tis only what has come in my way,' said the carter unboastfully. "'I've never been there, no more than you, but I've picked up the knowledge here and there, and you'd be welcome to it. "'A getting about the world as I do, and mixing with all classes of society. One can't help hearing of things.' A friend of mine that used to clan the boots at the Croizer Hotel in Christminster when he was in his prime, why I knowed him as well as my own brother in his later years. June continued his walk homeward alone, pondering so deeply that he forgot to feel timid. He suddenly grew older. It had been the yearning of his heart to find something to anchor on, to cling to, for some place which he could call admirable. Should he find that place in this city if he could get there? Would it be a spot in which, without fear of farmers or hindrance or ridicule, he could watch and wait, and set himself to some mighty undertaking like the men of old whom he had heard? As the halo had been to his eyes when gazing it at a quarter of an hour earlier, so was the spot mentally to him as he pursued his dark way. It is a city of light, he said to himself. The tree of knowledge grows there, he added a few steps further on. It is a place that teachers of men spring from and go to. It is what you may call a castle manned by scholarship and religion. After this figure, he was silent a long while till he added, It would just suit me. <laughs>